The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Good to be with you. As I said earlier, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new, especially, I want to welcome you. Uh, we are a fairly new church seeking to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him here in the city of Charlotte. So glad that you've chosen to worship with us. We'd love to meet you. Answer any questions you have about Jesus. Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. Uh, you're going to want a Bible. Hopefully you brought yours. If not, grab one on the seat backs. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. Revelation chapter 2. we got a lot of ground to cover. Make no apologies. I, uh, this letter in particular... All of them are going to be really, they're going to speak to different parts of us, but this one in particular has just been, I mean, beating me up in the best Holy Spirit way possible this week, and so I've got, I've got a lot to say. So let's pray, and then we're just going to go for it and see what the Holy Spirit has for us, all right? Thanks. All right, let's pray together. Lord, do we need you? How badly we need you, Lord. But by your mercy and grace and power, but by your indwelling Holy Spirit, but by the grace shown and made available to us on the cross, Revelation 2, 1 through 7, is impossible for us to follow. And so, Lord, I I pray this morning that we would feel the burden of these verses, the weight of these verses, the conviction of these verses, but also the free invitation of these verses. That we would believe you're here with us today, ready to change us, shape us, mold us, transform us by the renewing of our minds, Lord. And so we ask you would do what only you can do. Take your word, put it into our hearts such that our lives are changed. We need you for that. We love you. Probably sings in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. We, uh, just by way of recap, this fall are working our way through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And just to kind of set you up from what we talked about last week, these are seven letters written by the disciple John. John is the last living disciple of Jesus. He's been exiled onto an island called Patmos for preaching the gospel, and he has this vision. It says he's caught up by the Holy Spirit. Jesus appears to him in this crazy picture of the throne and then tells him, write what you see to the seven churches. And so he's going to write a letter to address seven ancient churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. And these were seven churches in seven pretty global cities. You can see them up here on the map behind me. And they would make up 
what would encompass the kind of postal trading route of that time in modern day Turkey. And so you can track the circle of the cities and he's going to start in Ephesus and then you can just kind of work your way around. So next week we'll look at Smyrna and then at Pergamum and then at Thyatira and so on and so forth. And so it makes sense. This is the order of the letters to the churches because this is the order the mailman would have traveled in the ancient world. And so he's going to start today by writing the first letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, a little bit of background. This is going to matter for what we're about to see in the letter. Ephesus is a very prominent city in the ancient world. It was extremely wealthy. It was one of the main centers of trade and commerce in the ancient world, but it was also extremely wicked. It was a city known in particular for its temple prostitution. You see, in the city, there was a temple to the false god Artemis, and they would come and they would offer their sacrifices to this false God. And Paul, you can read this in Acts chapter 18, goes there, he preaches the gospel alongside of a husband and wife team named Priscilla and Aquila, and they plant a church, and the gospel just turns the city upside down. You can go read Acts 19 and 20, but basically a revival sweeps out in Ephesus, so much so that the merchants who sell the false idols that they would use to worship Artemis are so afraid their economy is going to collapse that they cause a riot and send Paul out of the city. Right after this, Paul's going to send his disciple Timothy to go pastor the church here. Timothy's actually pastoring Ephesus when Paul writes First and Second Timothy to him. And then after Timothy leaves, John actually comes and takes over. And Ephesus is where John is pastoring when he gets sent to exile on the island of Patmos. So the church in Ephesus has this history of being a robust, Jesus-loving, gospel-preaching church in the middle of this insane epicenter of wickedness and wealth. And they are the ones who get the first letter from Jesus. And some of it, very encouraging. Some of it, not so much. All right, that's where we're going. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. All right, so if you missed last week, just by way of reminder, at the end of chapter one, we saw in the picture of Jesus on the throne that he holds the seven stars, which are the seven angels of the seven churches in his right hand, and seven golden lampstands, which we find out are the churches, are around his throne. And each letter is referring back to a picture in Revelation chapter one. And so here, John's grounding us in, before I get to the letter, remember, Jesus controls the church and the church glorifies him. That's the grounding for the rest of the letter. Jesus controls the church. He holds it in his right hand, and it points, it glorifies, it makes much of him. Verse 2, these are the words of Jesus. I know your works, your toil, patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are patiently enduring and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So the letter starts good, right? Jesus starts by commending and encouraging them. I see two things. I see your good deeds, and I see your good works. He first commends their good deeds. He says, I see how you're toiling with patient endurance, you're laboring. He probably has in mind here religious activities like serving the poor, showing the gospel with hospitality, sharing the gospel with their neighbors. And Jesus is like, I see that, thumbs up. 
And then he commends their good doctrine. He's like, you had these guys come into the church. They claimed to be apostles, but they were teaching false doctrine, and you didn't let it go. You didn't let them say wrong things about me. You've defended good doctrine. And so he's like, I'm, I've got two good things. I see your good deeds, and I see your good doctrine. Good job. Thumbs up. Things are going well. They're doing good things for Jesus. They're teaching good things about Jesus. What's the problem? Verse 4. But I have this against you. To the words of Jesus should cause us to pause, cause us to have a little bit of healthy fear and trepidation because of how glorious we saw him to be in Revelation 1. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. This is a terrifying verse. I mean, this verse tells us that it's completely possible to come to church regularly, to be committed to the Bible, to serve faithfully, to follow all of the rules for a righteous life that Jesus outlines in his scriptures, and yet do all of it while slowly giving up your love for Jesus. Well, what has happened here, right? Well, you see, what has happened is that Paul first preached the gospel and plants this church. There's this widespread gospel revival, but now it's been a little bit. It's been 50 or so years since the gospel first comes to Ephesus, since their lives were turned upside down, since the church was planted. And somewhere along the way, though they've passed down the good deeds and though they've passed down the good doctrine, they have not passed down their love for Christ. They've forgotten it. Somewhere along the way, they stopped doing these good things because of their love for Jesus. Somewhere along the way, this church became marked by just a bunch of religious activity. Somewhere along the way, they abandoned their first love. They abandoned a heart after Christ. Now, there's a wide variety of faith journeys in the room, all right? I know a lot of your faith stories. I know that some of you came to Jesus within the last few weeks or the last few months or the last few years. Like some of you are new to this stuff and you're like, this is awesome. You can't get enough. You're like soaking it all in, reading as much as you can, showing up, serving, doing everything. You're like, this is awesome. You're like radically in love with Jesus because it's just so fresh and new to you. Others of you have not stepped into a relationship with Jesus yet. You're still exploring the teachings of Christ. You're still asking questions about faith. We're so glad you're here, and we hope you find this to be a safe place for you to wrestle with Jesus and what he says. And yet there's a lot of us in the room, a good portion of us, that our walk with Christ is going on decades. You've been following Jesus for a while. You're like, Tim, I grew up around this Jesus stuff, right? Like, I, I knew the books of the Bible before I knew the alphabet. I had every badge you could get in Awana possible. <laughs> And if you don't know that reference, you're better for it, all right? <laughs> you're like, I, I've done the baptism thing like eight times. Like, I grew up in this. I've gone to every youth camp, every mission trip. I've gone overseas. I'm like extra mission trip, all right? <laughs> I did the college ministry thing and so on and so forth. And yet here's the danger. I think this passage in particular speaks to you as a warning of a current danger for you and a future danger for all of you who are new to Jesus. Here's the danger. The danger, what Jesus says is that as your faith grows old, your heart can grow cold. I hear this a lot uh, where folks will say, man, I really want someone in my life who's a mentor who is older and wiser. But we always assume the and, right? Like we always assume older is going to equal more mature. We always assume older is going to equal more in love with Jesus. Like we just assume the nature of our life is going to progress in such a way where suddenly we're going to wake up more in love with Jesus than we are today. But the danger Jesus warns us of in, a few, in Revelation chapter 2 is as your faith grows old, your love for Jesus can grow cold. Have you ever heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt? Anybody heard that? 
It's an unfortunate reality, right, that as we grow more familiar with something, it often makes us not appreciate the thing as much. I think that's true in the Christian life. Familiarity breeds contempt. It breeds complacency. As we follow Jesus over an extended period of time, the danger is not that we would gradually grow more and more in love with him, which again is the goal of the Christian life, that we would learn to love Jesus more and be loved by him more, realize his love more, that we would grow cold and casual to the things of Christ. The danger is that familiarity with Jesus and the gospel and the doctrine and theology and good living and all of these things would not lead to more delight, but more and more indifference. And what happens is, as you follow Jesus for any length of time, you start to see this, and then you start to look back on people who are new to the faith, almost with like half jealousy, half disappointment. Like, I remember when I was new. I remember when I was excited. I remember when this was fresh to me. And if we're being honest, this can happen to all of us, right? I'll go first. This is me, right? This is me. I'll go first. This week, Tuesday night, our community group wrapped up, and I was putting some books away, and I found uh, some of my old journals, specifically from senior year of college. Now, if you know some of my story, you know. Senior year of college was when the Lord really got my attention again after a pretty long period of rebellion against him. And so I was just reading through these journals that I wrote senior year of college, and they're all like all caps, bold, like full page lettering. Now I was kind of angsty as a senior in college, it's okay. But what I realized in reading this, it was just page after page of passionate, desperate pleas for God to move. God to move in my life with sin that I was struggling with at the time, God to move in the lives of my friends who didn't know him. I mean, I had like four page length prayers about one specific person, just a roommate of mine who I really wanted to come to know the Lord. And I'm reading through these journals, and the Holy Spirit convicts me. Is that how you felt two hours ago about your group? Group, I love you. Sorry. <laughs> like, were you at 5.30 before your group arrived, passionately and desperately in prayer and pleased that I would move in revival? that I would renew your heart and their hearts? Were you desperate for a move of God like you were then? Are you crying out, passionate because of seeing my love for you, that you, would, that you would then lead forth in love for others? Or are you just showing up to this because it's at your house and you're the pastor and you have to? I, I wrestle with that all of the time. I think uniquely because of my position. Like I, I love my job. I get paid to study the Bible and pray. Like It's the best life in the world. I love it. But the question I have to return to over and over and over again is my familiarity with the scriptures and with the Christ behind the scriptures growing to grow me into love for him or into coldness and familiarity? And that's not unique to me as a pastor. I think that's part of all of our struggle in the Christian life, is it not? Like anybody else feel this? Just me, Right? Like when you first became a Christian, you were just pumped about the scriptures. You were like, sorry, I can't go to the party on Friday night. I got to stay home and read my Bible. No to the date. I got a date with Jesus, right? Like that's how we were. And it was like every time we sat down to open the scriptures, it was like Jesus himself was in the room talking to us. And it was just alive. And you couldn't imagine not getting into his word and seeing all of the beautiful realities that it holds. And now it's like barely two minutes if I have time for it, if I have the energy for it, if I can even put my phone away long enough to get into it. When we first became a part of a local church and we were like, people love Jesus besides me? 
This is awesome. And you were like, every coffee I can have with people to pray and to study God's word and to encourage one another. I just, I want it. I want it all. I want it all. And now it's community groups, just that thing on the counter that looms over it as a burden where I got to get my kids in the car, drive across Charlotte traffic that's way worse than it should be at six o'clock. And I got to show up until we all sit silently in a room in a circle until somebody finally answers the question. Please answer the question. When you first become a Christian and every single one of your non-Christian friends suddenly don't want to be your friend because you won't shut up about Jesus. You're that annoying guy, that annoying woman who's like, will you just stop inviting me to church, please? (laughs) Like, we get it. You're excited about this Jesus thing. Stop talking about him. But you didn't care. You were so in love. You just needed everybody else around you to know what you'd found. And now serve? No thanks. Meet my neighbor? Uh, Somebody else? We still do it, right? More often than not, we still go through the motions, or at least try to go through the motions, but our, our heart has grown cold. Our love, our affection for Christ. And I don't, I don't mean like you're having a bad day, Right? Like, I don't mean you're having a bad week. I don't even mean you're having a bad month, right? Like, sometimes I think my heart has grown cold for Jesus, and it's really just that I got four hours of sleep and didn't drink enough coffee, all right? I'm not talking about those moments. I'm talking about the steady state of your heart over the long haul is cold towards affections for Jesus. Resonate with that at all. If that's you, that's where you find yourself now, or maybe you'll find yourself there soon. I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which one do you want first? Awesome. Good answer. That's what I have next. The bad news is that Jesus says it's their fault. I mean, look at, look at the language of the passage, right? Verse four, I have this against you that you have what? What's the word? Abandoned it. Other translations, you might have forsaken it. Let's be clear on this for them and for us. They have not lost their first love. They have not misplaced their first love. Like they woke up one morning and suddenly, where'd our first love go? It's gone. And this is how we fool ourselves, I think, into thinking our love for Jesus works. Like we just wake up one morning and suddenly I don't care about the things of God anymore. Like it's some fleeting feeling we got to make sure we hold on to it. Boom, it's gone. That's not what the text says. It says they've abandoned it. They've forsaken it. It didn't sneak away. They gave it up. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus shows them a path to getting it back. If you find yourself there, stale and dry and apathetic, forsaking your first love, if you find yourself there now, if you can see your heart creeping there, if you know that season because you've walked through it before and you're terrified about what it will mean for the future, there's hope. There's a way forward. Here's the good news. You're not a victim. You're not a victim. You're not a slave to your apathy. I just wish I could be more in love with Jesus again. You can. You can. According to Jesus, there's hope. You can. Jesus is clear with the church. It's up to you. Yes, the Holy Spirit's got to move like all of the Christian life. Absolutely. Yes and amen. And yes, it's a community project like all of the Christian life. Yes and amen. But Jesus is clear. You have to walk these steps. And so I need you to hear me on this. Your spouse cannot make you love Jesus more. Your community group leader cannot make you love Jesus more. Your pastors cannot make you love Jesus more. And uh, especially group leaders in the room, let me personally preach to you in the front of the people that you lead. So many group leaders and pastors that I know burn themselves out and run themselves ragged trying to get people to care and love Jesus. Your job is to set the mast, set the sail, lead them to the waters, and then pray that they might sail by the power of the Spirit. 
You cannot, you cannot make people love Jesus. That is a work of the Holy Spirit empowering them to do the work, to put themselves in the position for the Spirit to move. You hear that? So here's the path. Let's talk about the path. The rest of the time together, I just want to give you hope because I think this is such a common part of the Christian experience, myself included. I just want to give us some hope of what to do. And so we're just going to walk through really practically what does Jesus say the steps are. They're all in verse 5. He gives them all in verse 5. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Three steps to returning to our first love. Number one, remember. Remember. Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, remember. Specifically, remember from where you have fallen. Meaning, remember what it was like when you first encountered the love of God. Jesus says, remember the revival that broke out in your city. Remember the revival that shaped your heart such that you put away idol worship and you were ready to risk everything to chase after him. Remember how in love you were with Christ when you first encountered the gospel and his grace and love for you. This is the only marriage illustration I have, I promise. Lindsay and I started dating uh, in the spring semester of my senior year and her junior year. And when, at the time, she lived at the, we went to the University of South Carolina, and she lived at this part of campus known as the Horseshoe. And it's this old part of campus from the 1800s that has all these brick pathways. It's built in a horseshoe. That's why it's called the Horseshoe. And there's all these magnificent oak trees. Now, Lindsay and I are not night people by any stretch of the imagination. Like, 10, 10 p.m. is bad, 9 p.m. is good, 8 p.m. is perfect for bedtimes for us, all right? Like, it's just not going to happen. But when we first started dating, I remember leaving my off-campus um, home, and I would drive to campus at like 9.30 or 10 p.m. at night. And we would meet on the horseshoe, and we would walk hundreds of laps on those brick pathways, talking about everything and nothing at the same time. You know what I mean? And now what happens is that every time we go back to Columbia to visit my family, and we're near USC, she always wants to stop, and she always wants to go to the horseshoe, and she always wants to stay in there, and she wants to tell all of the stories about how when we first met, because she's such a sap, all right? She's like, remember this, remember that, remember this. And as much as at the moment, I always make fun of her for it. I always say, you tell the same stories. I know, blah, blah, I know, we love each other, woo. Um, <laughs> listen, as much as I want to make fun of her for that inevitable nostalgia trip she takes us on, there's something really beautiful about it. Because each time she brings it up, something in my heart and my mind goes back to how I felt in those moments. Like, I, I remember our first date where she invited me, ha, to her sorority formal. And I was so nervous that when the band played a slow song, I literally lied and said I had to use the bathroom because I was so afraid to dance with her. And I remember our second date where I was freaking out because I had such a plan to take her to a certain restaurant and then we were gonna go somewhere for an event and I remember the restaurant being closed and so we had to go to this other place and it was, I tell you not, I kid you not, the world's worst Indian food imaginable. And I was like, I've royally messed it up. And so I remember third date where I drove her down to Charleston for the day and I spent way more money even to this day than I've ever spent on a date <laughs> to try to make up for how bad the Indian food was on date number two. And I remember all of these moments and here's the reality, I remember those those butterflies and those nerves and that excitement. And here's what you have to know. You can't build a marriage off of butterflies. Like you can't, right? If you've married for any length of time, you know the butterflies fade. You can't build a family, build a home, sustain a marriage and a family under those feelings you had at first. But you know what remembering those feelings you had at first help you do? Build the home. 
Build the marriage, build the family. This is part of why it's a great practice. If you have photos or videos from your anniversary, to go back and look at those and watch those, from your wedding, to go back and look at those and watch those every anniversary. It's a chance to remember and let the remembering of those feelings drive you towards a deepening, maturing love moving forward into the future. And that's what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. Remember what life was like with Jesus when you first met him. So church, do you remember? Like, just take a minute. Do you remember? Do you remember what it was like when grace first gripped your heart? Do you remember what it was like when Jesus first made himself real to you? One of my distinct joys of being a pastor here is that every single person before they become a member sits down with one of our two pastors and we get to hear your story. We get to hear how you became a Christian, what you were chasing after before Jesus made himself real to you, how it kept coming up empty and how Jesus kept showing his love and affection. And I kid you not, 99% of the time when someone's telling that story, they just can't help but either smile or weep or some combination of both because they're remembering what it was like when Jesus first showed up in the picture. Jesus says, remember that. Let it drive you towards a deepening love now. And maybe you're like, Tim, I've been following Jesus since like birth. Like, I don't even know. I don't have that story. Like, I just grew up around it. I don't even know how to really like think about that moment. Well, here's my encouragement to you. Remember that for other people. Remember the gospel and see how it grips other people and let that spur you on. This is why everything we do as a church is so, part of why everything we do as a church is so centered around the gospel. We preach the gospel every sermon. We remember the gospel every week when we take communion. We sing the gospel. We celebrate the reconciling power of the gospel when we pass the peace. We remind each other of the gospel in group. We celebrate stories and how the gospel breaks out in people's lives when they get baptized. We take time in member meetings and family vacation to tell stories about how Jesus is showing up and the gospel is still working and changing people. All of these are means of remembering. All means of remembering the love we had at first. So that's number one. Number two. How are we doing? We good? Sweet, number two, repent. That was a bad setup, I'm so sorry. <laughs> repent. He says, remember the love you had at first. Remember from where you have fallen and repent. The word repent in the Greek is the same word, root word where we get the word metamorphosis. It means to change, but not just to change into a similar thing, to change into something better, right? Like you have a caterpillar who goes through a process of changing to become a beautiful butterfly, and that's what this word talks about. It's, I'm heading down this path, I'm going in this direction, and I'm going to turn by the power of the Spirit and start heading in a different and new and better direction. I'm going to be made new. That's what it means to repent. And that's what Jesus is commanding this church to do. If you want to return to your first love, repent and turn away from what is souring and dampening and diminishing that love within you. This is Jim Hamilton. He's a Old Testament uh, scholar, but his commentary on Revelation is just the best. If you're looking for, like, how do I dig alongside of this, Jim Hamilton... The Spirit speaks to the churches. It's an incredible commentary on Revelation. He says this. He says, What is it that keeps you from Bible study, prayer, and reliance on Christ? Your soul depends on your ability to repent of those things so that you might cultivate the first love that Jesus wants. What keeps you from Christ? Your soul depends on your ability to repent of those things. Jesus says, Guard your heart. How do we do that? By repenting. Now here's the issue though. When we hear, repent from what keeps you from loving Jesus, our minds tend to immediately go towards like the bigger things, right? Like pornography keeps me from loving Jesus, or anger keeps me from loving Jesus, or work idolatry keeps me from loving Jesus, greed keeps me from loving Jesus. And while all of that is true, 
what I would argue is just as dangerous and much more subtle are all the other little things that take up space in our hearts that keep us from loving him. Because here's how it works. You have a limited number of what I like to call care molecules. And I'm sorry if I've given this spill to some of you already. You have a limited number of what I like to call care molecules, meaning you only have so much care in your body to give to people and things. And the danger to our love of God and what we need to repent of is all of the ways we give our care molecules away to trivial things that do not have eternal significance, such that we do not have any more care molecules to give to God. So we think we're infinite. I can care about this thing with all of my attention and devotion and also Jesus, and then we're surprised when we have nothing left to give to Jesus. And here's how it works. So I'll talk to men all of the time who are deeply burdened by their apathy towards God, like genuinely wrestling with it. And yet I have never had a conversation with them about how they're struggling with apathy towards their fantasy football team. I chose that one very specifically. I'll talk to women in our church who genuinely want to find time to pray, struggle to find time to pray, to be with their Savior. And yet in conversations, I've never heard a struggle to find three plus hours to give to Instagram and TikTok. And this is me. So in case you're like, Tim's perfect. I'm, no, far from perfect. There's this show that I love on TV. I, my one thing I watch is reality competition television. It's bad. It's really bad. Um, and there's a show that takes place every summer. I won't say the name of it. And one of the perks is that you get to watch these people compete as they live in a house. And you can watch them almost 24-7. And it's bad because you can just watch them strategize and have like conversations and they backstab each other and vote each other out. It's like survivor, but in a house, it's very fun. And one of the things I noticed though, is that every summer it's like, why do I struggle so much with the disciplines all of a sudden? Like genuinely, like I was having this, this conversation in prayer with the Lord a few weeks ago. Like, it seems like my heart's growing cold towards you this summer. And it's like, oh yeah, because I am obsessed with this thing that happens every year from July through this year, November. <laughs> Now, here's the deal. Am I saying that fantasy football is bad? No, of course not. I don't play it because I'm bad at it, all right? Am I saying that my favorite TV show is bad? Definitely not. I'm going to watch it tonight. <laughs> Am I saying social media is bad? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but that's another sermon for another day, all right? I am saying if you find yourself struggling with a cold heart towards God, it's worth doing an honest self-examination of where your care molecules are going. Politics, fashion trends, influencers, clickbait news, your lawn, your career, your need to be the perfect parent, fill in the blank. And then repenting. Giving that desire over to the Lord. This is John Piper. He says it really well. And then we'll go to point three. John Piper says this, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that doles our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. The most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. The most deadly appetites that keep us from the love of God are not the poison of evil, but the simple pleasures of earth. So we remember the love we had at first. We repent. We turn away from what is ruining your affection and appetite for God. And then number three, we return. 
we, we return. Do the work you did at first. <laughs> Go back to what you were doing when you first fell in love with God. You see, the answer to our cold heart in this church is not to stop doing things. It's to keep going through the motions, even when we don't want to keep going through the motions. Yeah. I've, uh, I've spent the last, this is not an exaggeration, year and a half, two years of my life studying uh, the history of spiritual practices in the church. It's for school. It's as fun as you think. Um, just studying and researching how have Christians throughout history thought about the ancient spiritual practices of prayer and scripture and Sabbath and fasting and hospitality, all of these things. If that sounds interesting, sign up for the, in the Institute this spring. Thank you. And one of the things, one of the things that has become so clear to me as I've studied Christian spiritual practices in the history of the Christian church is that Christians throughout history have struggled with their actions and their hearts not lining up. Like that's a continual problem throughout church history, doing things out of duty and not out of delight for Jesus. That's a consistent refrain. It's looked different ways. It's been talked about in different ways, but that's the consistent worry of Christians throughout the church is I'm acting differently and my heart is not catching up to love for Jesus. What's unique in my argument from the last 30 or so years is that we've been the first generation of Christians to think the answer to that problem is to stop doing the thing rather than to fix our hearts. Like almost everybody else in church history has said, my heart and my actions are not lining up. I need to fix my heart while I keep doing the actions. And we, I think uniquely in the last 30 or so years, because of our bent and hatred and fear, sometimes a good fear, it's driven out of a good fear of legalism that's gone too far, is that we think, I'm doing Christian things without love for God, I just need to stop doing the things. And Jesus says, no, no, no. That's like telling a spouse who's struggling to love their spouse, you shouldn't go on a date until you want to go on a date. No, do the things while you wait for your heart to catch up. Don't be fooled into thinking, I'm apathetic about Jesus, and so I don't feel like doing this spiritual practice. Rather, be changed by the renewal of your mind into the reality, I'm apathetic about Jesus. There's nothing more important for me right now than to do the spiritual practice. This is part of why we push rule of life so strongly, having a set rhythm of how to order your life around practices to be with Jesus and become like Jesus. Part of why we do that is not for the good times, it's for the bad times. You need a rule of how to follow Jesus for your life, not for the bad times, but for when the good times, but when you're it goes bad for when your life blows up or when you feel cold towards Christ. We don't feel like doing it at all because here's the reality. Feeling does not lead to action. Action leads to feeling. And so what did you do when you first met Jesus? How are you captured by his grace and affection for you? So remember, repent, return. Let's finish our passage. Head towards the close, verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. They'll come up in a different letter, so we'll wait till then. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus lays out two paths before them. Something he does throughout the Gospels, he continually lays out two ways, the way of life and the way of death. The way of death, path one, the Ephesian church doesn't change. They don't remember, repent, or return. Jesus says, I'll remove your lampstand. You're not going to be a church anymore. Listen, this is a warning for Citizens Church. We could keep a lot of really good doctrine and do a lot of really good religious activity, and if we lose our love for Christ, there's no future for us as a church. There's no future. So he says, you do that, I remove your lampstand, you're no longer a church, but the path of life. He says to the one who conquers, as he has conquered, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. The tree of life was in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, remember, were kicked out, barred from eating this tree. But in Revelation 22, we have this promise that one day Jesus is going to return. 
He's going to usher in a new garden, an even better garden, a garden city. And the tree of life, it says, will be in the center of that city. And so Jesus is saying, if you conquer, if you hold fast to your first love, if you stay steadfast in the midst of trial, if you walk with me, there's a future paradise eating of the tree of life in my presence. And so here's where I want to close. Close with this, just a simple question. Have you abandoned your first love? There's a lot of words to get to that question. Have you abandoned your first love? Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, years, decades, and you would say, man, I've just grown complacent. I've just grown cold. Maybe not even permanently, but just in this season, I just feel cold to the things of Christ. Are you willing to walk the steps? By the power of the Spirit, are you willing to remember, repent, and return? Or maybe for you, you've abandoned your first love because you've never received it at all. Maybe for you, you're like, I've never put my faith in Jesus. I can't grow cold to Jesus. I never grew warm to Jesus. If that's you, if you're exploring these things, let me just tell you this invitation. What I love about the good news of our gospel, what I love about the good news of Jesus, is that the invitation to love God first comes with the reality that you are loved by God. Because here's the good news of the gospel, church. What does First John say? This is love. Not that we love, but that he loved us. So what does Jesus do when our hearts are cold towards him? Comes and dies. What does Jesus do when we're his enemy? He comes and gives up his life. What does Jesus do when we're running in full-out rebellion against our Savior? He sheds his blood. What does Jesus do when we want nothing to do with God because we're dead and slaves to our sin and our trespasses? He dies and rises again. That's the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus can say to this church, you've forgotten your first love because he knows the reason why it was a first love in the first place is because you first learned to, be rec- to receive my love for you. And that's the invitation. If you're here today and you're like, I feel cold towards the things of Christ. I feel like I'm struggling to care about the things of God. The first step, more than anything else, is to remember that you were first loved by God. That's the invitation of the Christian life. The great invitation of the Christian life is to learn more and more how loved you are and then to love God and love others in return. And that's the invitation for you today, whether it's to receive that love for the first time or to remember that love for the 1,000 millionth time. It's not even a number. It's to return, to remember what Christ has done and his invitation because of his love for you to love him in return. Church, the one who calls us not to abandon our first love is the one who does not abandon us when we do. The one who holds us fast for all who trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. We we do. At, At the core of our being, we love you. And I know there are seasons and there are Years that feel way longer than just seasons where we feel cold towards you. We feel apathetic towards you. We struggle to be zealous for the things of you. And it just feels like we're going through the motions, Lord. But you give us hope in the midst of that. That we're not slaves to our apathy. We're not victims to our abandonment of love. Lord, you call us with your love and by the power of the Holy Spirit to remember to repent and to return. So, our Lord, I pray that you would, more than anything else, capture us with your deep love for us this morning. 
Lord, we learn to love by first receiving your love, and so I pray that we would receive your love available to us in Christ through his work, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, Lord. And so I pray for those in the room who have never trusted in him. Lord, would you break down every wall of excuses, every wall of justifications, every wall of self-righteousness, Lord, and would you capture their hearts even this moment, even today, and save them by the power of your spirit. Lord, for those of us in the room who've been following you for decades, Lord, I pray that you would help us. We would not grow cold to the things of you. Lord, we know this is not a one and done. This is a constant invitation. We would not abandon you in the midst of our religious activity. That we also wouldn't abandon our religious activity in the midst of growing cold towards you. That you would build us as people of faith, fervor, zealousy for your name. Love you. Need you. In Jesus' name. Amen.